I hope you're not tired of Romans 8 because there's a lot more. There's a lot more. This morning we find ourselves in Romans 8, 28 through 30. The three verses I want to read in your hearing right now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, if you learned this, memorize this verse like many of us did in, in the King James, you think, well, that's backwards. Well, actually, it's the King James that has it backwards because according to the original, this is the order. Paul deals with the love first. And then hits on all things together for good. You can really break up this first verse into three parts. You have all those that love God. You have God working all things together for their good. And then you have those who are called according to His purpose. And that is the proper order. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined. Yes, folks. The word predestined is in the Bible. Not just a bunch of radical Calvinists somewhere dream that up. That really is in the Bible. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might... that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, my aim this morning is this. To begin a series of sermons on Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. I cannot tell you how many right now How many sermons there are likely to be before we move on to further verses. But in my estimation, there's just no way to do justice here with only one or two messages. So God helping us, here we go. This morning I want to start by looking at verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now we won't finish with this verse today, but we will at least get a little bit familiar with it. So for this morning, this is all I have. Six observations and we're done. That that almost makes it sound like it's going to be short, right? (laughs) Six observations about verse 28. First, Romans 8.28 is one of the most loved promises in the Bible. Many have memorized it. I don't know how it is with all you. I memorized it very early on as a Christian. Young Christian. One of the very first that I ever memorized. I mean, with many people, it's, it's about as familiar as... You know, John 3.16 and and Psalm 23. And it's not hard to see why, right? 
It's not hard to see why this has been a blessing to Christians for 2,000 years. Right? I mean, think with me a second. We can basically break, break down things in our lives into three categories. Now think with me here. Things happen in my life that I look at as good. We kind of heard a little bit of this in the Sunday school class. Like, Craig got a raise, right? And when he told the church about it on Wednesday, we all thought, good. Right? I mean, that's, that's how we are. Then there are things we just sort of look at as indifferent. I drove to the store and back. I didn't get a raise. But I didn't get in a wreck either. So, I mean, we look at that as just kind of not really good, not really bad, just sort of indifferent. Then there are the things we think of as bad. Craig came in today and said, not that he got a raise, he said he went to the ATM machine and he left his credit card in the thing and drove off. Now we look at that and we think, bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we, we think that. That's how we think. That's from our perspective. If it fills me with joy and pleasure and satisfaction and rejoicing, it's good. If it brings pain and suffering and worry, like Craig said, he was pretty worried. Then he got up this morning, didn't remember it. The moment he worried it or thought about it, the worry came back. If there's, if there's sorrow and suffering, we look at it as bad. If there's neither joy or sorrow, it's sort of indifferent to us. Now, here's the thing. We don't really need a verse that tells us the things we think are good work out for our good. Now, obviously when it says all things, it includes the good. But, we already esteem the things that are good to be for our good. You don't necessarily find great comfort and help in this verse when you get a raise. Because you already feel it's working out for your good. But when the bad comes, and your lost family members rush in and they say, and where's your God now? And you feel awfully lonely in your suffering. And the devil says, see, God doesn't really care all that much about you. He doesn't love you. He wouldn't treat you that way if He did. It's then that the sweetness of this verse comes alive. When you're asking why me, when you're wondering if God has forgotten you, when the world's telling you your circumstances are just another example of bad luck, it's right there that this verse is a great beacon of light that shines forth the truth that the sufferings of Christian are not random and purposeless and pointless. I'm not being blown about in my life by just dumb luck. And things we call accidents or they happen by chance listen to be a believer in the lord jesus christ is to god, have god almighty for you on your side taking all circumstances all events all trials all sorrows all angels all people all everything so that they work 
together to bring about good in the lives of every one of God's children. Every time. All the time. I mean, we really need to let that sink in. Those who God saves will forever and always and only know good. Isn't that an incredible thing? I mean, if you're saved, you will only know good. God never allows even one thing to work out badly for a single one of His children. If you are a Christian, He is not off distance somewhere leaving you alone. He is actively pursuing your good. You are never forgotten. You are never outside the very center of His attention. Now that is a promise worth knowing. And it's no wonder so many Christians love it. My second observation is this. Good is what all men want. Over 6 billion people in this world, different skin colors, different languages, various cultures, but they all, and I'll mark this down, to the man, desire the same thing. They desire good. From that standpoint, this promise is massive. It's simply massive. It promises the one thing that all men most desperately strive after. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All men want good. You all want it. Any, anyone here going to raise their hand and say, not me, I'm the exception. I don't want good. This is man's, really, it's man's greatest quest. How can I get to the place where I surround myself with nothing but good forever? And here it is in this promise right before our eyes. Can you even conceive of a greater promise than the guarantee that you will literally swim in good no matter what you encounter in life? It may not register to our eyes, but I'll tell you what, there are many in this room that are literally plunged into the depths of good. You can't see it with this eye, but it is a truth. It is a reality. They live in a constant state of good. There is a good God in heaven. And He's determined to do them good. To make them good. To surround them with good. Overjoy them with good. Can you even imagine what what people miss who reject Jesus Christ? What vast storehouses of good men forfeit when they reject Christ? The insanity of men We've heard about some of this. Praise the Lord, we heard that a, there was one who departed that has come back. Right? Maybe you didn't hear that, but basically on what was announced Wednesday, there's been a return. But what insanity when men walk away from Jesus Christ to go back and lick up their vomit again. 
The doorway to all good is by faith in the risen Savior. In the Christ. He bore the wrath of God for our sins that we might be objects of good rather than objects of wrath. It is total folly to look for good anywhere but in the God who has revealed Himself in the man, Jesus Christ. Now here's my third observation. So you got two so far, right? One, it's, it's a beloved promise and we see why. I mean, it really hits people where they live, especially when they suffer. Number two, good is what's promised. And that's really what all men want. Three, my third observation is critical. Romans 8.28 is not a promise for all men. Despisers and haters of God have no part whatsoever in this privilege. Now stop right here. Stop right here. There are a whole number of you in here that hate God. I don't know what that number is exactly. But you hate God. And I need to stop right here because I know something. You are not likely to admit that you do. I mean, if I went around right now and said, raise your hand if you hate God, I'm probably going to see no hands come up. But the truth is, if we could see you for what you are, there's a whole number of you. You just don't admit it. And part of it is because you don't see yourself the way God sees you. But look, I want to use the Word of God a little bit to try to find you out. Oh, I know you're going to try to hide and you're going to try to skirt away from this title being branded across your forehead. You don't want to be called a hater of God. Not many do. Although most are. So, let's see if the Word of God might find you out a little bit. If you just go back a little bit in this same chapter to verse 7, you have a very interesting statement made. For the mind that is set on the flesh. Now look, right here. Minds belong to people. Don't think, well, he's talking about the mind. I mean, what is this? He's talking about people that have this mind. People that have the mind that is set on the flesh, they're what? Hostile to God. Maybe your Bible says enmity. You know what? That is the word for hatred. That's the word. These are people that have minds that hate God. Okay, now how are they characterized? You read a little further. For it, again we're talking about the mind, so he uses it, not he or she. But remember, this it is the mind. People have this mind. These people that hate God, they show themselves to be haters of God in the fact that they what? They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, the mind, cannot. Do you see the connection? There's a connection between how I respond to God's law and whether I hate or love the God who gives that law. Now look, look, I'm not asking you whether you take Bibles and tear the pages out. I'm not asking you if you burn down church buildings or spit and swear at pastors. That's, that's not the issue here. The whole issue is this. Do you basically have a disregard 
overall, generally, in your life for the commandments of God. I mean, when Jesus Christ says, this is what I want you to do and this is what I don't want you to do, you basically live your life ignoring that, not caring what he has said. Look, if that's the case about you, you hate God. If you really don't care what Christ said, you hate him. And Paul does not say that all things work together for your good. All things work together for good only to the people specified in the verse, not to anyone else. So there are two things that need to be true of you for this promise to apply to you. One is that you love God. The other is that you're called according to His purpose. So if you don't love God, you can't claim this promise. If you're not called according to His purpose, you can't claim this promise. In fact, you know what Jesus told us? He told us that the way that leads to life is hard. And how many are on it? Few. So, as a whole, when we look around in this world, you guys realize the ones that are on that road are the Christians, right? The Christians are the ones that love God, right? You guys understand that when you gather all the people up in this world among these six billion people who all want good, most of them hate God. Because most of them reject Jesus Christ. They reject God's commandments. They reject the command. They don't want to be told what to do. They want heaven, but they don't want a God that tells them how to live their life. Because they want heaven, but they want their sin too. And if you love your sin, you hate God. If you love the world, you hate God. I mean, I'm telling you what the Bible says. And most of the world is full of God-haters. So, most of the world are not partakers in this promise in 828. That's a fact. Look, most people are not described in Romans 828. Most people are described in Romans 2.5. If you happen to be right there, you probably turn your Bible back two pages and you can find this. The Apostle describes those who are not partakers of Romans 828 when he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are, now watch this word, storing up, two words actually, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, this is what's true of you that hate God. All things are working together for your eternal misery. Because all things that you do are storing up wrath for you. Look, all the kindnesses and all the things that in our human perspective we say are good, like the raises. Look, when a Christian gets a raise, it's working for his good. When you get a raise in your unthankful, un-God-glorifying heart, all you're doing is storing up more wrath for you. You will be held accountable in that day. The sufferings of a Christian are working for their good. Your sufferings are not. Because in your sufferings, you're not trusting Christ. You're not looking to God. You're not trusting Him. And all these things are multiplying in the storage of wrath that will one day fall upon your head. Oh yes! The sun may be shining. The birds might be singing. Prosperity might be knocking on your door. That may all be true. But if you do not love God and are not called according to God's purpose, all your experiences are not leading to good, but to damnation. Look, all men want good, but only those 
who trust and love Jesus Christ shall have it. That's the third observation. Fourth observation. This is not a commandment. Romans 8.28 is not a commandment. It is a promise. It's a statement of fact. Now why is that so important to emphasize? Because if I don't, I'm afraid. I know we have people that are coming around here and they're trying to figure Christianity out. Or they're trying to figure what true faith is all about. And sometimes they can look at texts like this and misread They can see in there, oh, there's something I'm supposed to do here. That's what Paul's telling me. Do this. Do this. But that really isn't what the verse is. Yes, we have commandments to love God. I'm not denying that. But I want you to see this promise for what it is. I mean, it might be obvious to many of you that that's exactly what it is. But, think on this. When you love Him, all things work together for good. But what you don't want to think, what we don't want to have going through our minds is this. Well, yes, when I love Him, all things work together for my good. And on the days that I don't love Him, well, on those days, everything works together for bad. When Paul calls Christians Those who love God, he's not talking about something that's in and out. Here one day, there the next. He's talking about a permanent reality. Not something that changes. Not something true one day, gone the next. Those who love God, listen. Those who love God do so because He first loved them. Our love for Him is actually a product, a consequence of His love for us. That's what 1 John 4.19 says. The only way a Christian's love for God can fail is if God's love for the Christian fails. He sustains my love. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That you may live. Do you hear what this is saying? God causes me to love Him. He circumcises my heart with a circumcision not made with hands that is so effective and effectual that prompts my love to Him. We are told in the Scriptures it's a fruit of the Spirit. The very Spirit of God. God Himself bears that fruit in my life. He cultivates that fruit. He is the source of that fruit. For my love to fail, God must fail. Since He never fails, my love for Him never fails. Of course, our love for God has moments of mountaintop experiences and intensity and moments where we're in the valley, moments of weakness, just like every other love relationship we have. But for the true Christian, love for God is what defines him. It's the abiding condition of the believer's heart. Sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker. So Paul is not saying all things work for good for Christians some of the time when their love for God is strong and all things don't work for good to Christians at other times when their love for God is weak. 
He's saying this. For Christians, the ones whose hearts have been circumcised by God so that they love God, all things work for good all the time. If you lack this love, here's the thing. If you lack this love, don't go home today and say to yourself, Aha! Now I know the key to Christianity. I've just got to grip my teeth and love this God who I don't love. I've got to read this Bible that I've never had an interest in. I've got to do these things that I've never had a desire to do. I've got to work this thing out. I've got to struggle. I've got to do better. I've got to try to have better thoughts of God. No! That's not it. The only ones in this world who have hearts that swell with true love to God are those who have thrown their arms around Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Around Him for full complete. Did you see it in the song? Full atonement. Can it be? Those that throw their arms. You will never love God until the blood of Christ washes away all the filth, all the putrid disgustingness of your sin. Do you, you realize not loving God is a crime? It is a heinous, wicked ordeal, folks. And you'll never have victory over that until you first have there's no victory in sin, folks, until it's first forgiven. You can't go home and grit this thing out. You don't need to try harder. You need to be saved. God has exalted Jesus Christ to His very right hand as Prince and Savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is the remedy for your lovelessness. Not trying harder. Five. Those who love God. You see that word? They're the ones that are recipients of this promise. Those who love God. My fifth observation has to do with this. Love. What does that mean, those who love God? Now we noted from verse 7, right? That those who hate God are at enmity with Him. They have hostility towards Him. They do not submit to the law of God. So you know what we might be tempted to say? Well, that's it. We basically equate love to keeping His law. After all, didn't Jesus Christ say, if you love Me, keep My commandments? And certainly He did. But listen to what He says. If you love Me, keep My commandments. He's not saying, well, just keeping a set of Laws and, and duties and regulations. That's all you need to show love to me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if there is love, the overflow of that love is shown in obedience. But love is not just... Look, this is at the heart of the whole matter, folks. What, what in the world is going to keep this church from being a bunch of stupid hypocrites? And churches are full of them. And some in here are like that. What's going to keep us from that? 
hypocrites. Look, the Pharisees had lots of rules and lots of duties. They did. They tithed. They fasted. They gave their alms. They prayed. And what did Christ say to you hypocrites? God says your hearts are far from Him. Oh, how often we get... There can be this mentality among us that basically love to Christ is just keeping a set of rules. That's not it. That's not at the heart of this whole thing. You know what? I think we come closer to getting to something here right in the context. If you look right back at Romans 8.15, you know what you see there? You see that God has given His Spirit to His children. This is not a spirit of slavery and of bondage. It is a slave. It is a spirit of adoption. And look what happens. The spirit of adoption compels the children of God to do something. And what is it? And you don't cry, Abba, Father, just because... Look, what Paul isn't saying is you cry, Abba, Father, because you know you're supposed to. Because you know that's what Christians do in a sort of way. And so you just mechanically say the words. He's talking about the Spirit of God going to work in a man's heart or a woman's heart, a child's heart, so that there is Abba. I mean, what is Abba? What is that? He doesn't say that it, the Spirit comes along and produces this cry, Oh, thou distant, unapproachable deity! It isn't like that. There's something done in the heart that prompts this. It's right here, folks, that we have to be on target. The life of this church depends on this. It, it really does. What the Spirit of God does in a true child of God is produces intimacy and endearment with God on a very personal, on a very familiar level. It is closeness. You've got father-son relationship being pictured for us in this thing. You picture a child that sees a smiling father coming towards him and, and the delight that that child has. What we find in this picture is there is an attraction. What we need to ask ourselves is this. Do I take pleasure in God? Do I take pleasure in God the way that a child would of a father? To some of you, that's a foreign concept. You see God as duty. You see religion as something you have to do to escape hell. I'm not asking you today if you feel glad to be forgiven or saved or headed to heaven. That's not the question. The question is, are you attracted to God? Do you love Him? Do you delight in Him? Does your soul pant after Him? I know our love fluctuates. That's not the issue. I'm not looking for perfection here. But on the whole, is the essential response of your heart to rejoice in God, especially to rejoice in God as He's portrayed in the very face of Jesus Christ in the Gospel? Does that bring delight? Does that draw you? Is there a joyful reflex of your heart when you contemplate that all God is for us in Christ. Do you find Christ desirable? Not just what He gives you, but do you actually find Him to be the greatest treasure of such value as is worth selling all to have? 
Now look, I know it's impossible for us to separate Christ from all the benefits we have in Him. I mean, I think of Psalm 116 when I think about this. And the psalmist there says, I love God because. Because He's done the, He's heard me. He's answered me. He's, he's pitied me. And so I know we can't separate that. We can't separate our love for Christ from the things He's done for us. But, you know, as I, was, as I, I, I read through a book by Thomas Watson on this verse, and he gives this story of Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror. And he had these two friends. One, one had the name of Hephaestion, the other Craterus. And Alexander said this of his two friends, Hephaestion loves me because I am Alexander. Craterus loves me because I am King Alexander. One loved his person, the other loved the benefits he was able to get from the king. And this is what I'm asking you. Do you guys find Christ lovely and desirable? You know, there are a whole bunch of people that come to churches on Sundays. You know what they want? They want a fire escape out of hell. They really have no... Their hearts are drawn after the world, but there's fear that makes them want to accomplish the steps. Do the duty. I mean, we used to have a woman in our church. She's not here anymore. But she would say things like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to hell. I, I better come to church. I better do this. She read a book about hell, and all of a sudden she, her attendance greatly improved. You know what? When we have a church, when you read a book about Christ and your attendance greatly improves, then we're on to something. Then we're on to Watson goes on to say, love is not mercenary. You know what a mercenary is? It's a hired soldier. You need not hire a mother to love her child. A soul deeply in love with God needs not to be hired by rewards. Obviously, there are an abundance. One of them is right here in this very promise. All things work for good. But folks, as much as we can't separate Christ from His benefits to us, here's the thing. When your way becomes paved with sorrow and pain, and all your plans and your hopes are dashed, and the sun isn't shining, do you still desire Christ? Or are you tempted to shut the whole thing down and walk away? When God doesn't put you on easy street and He doesn't take all your problems away, can you still say, I don't care, Lord. You are all my delight. Heaven is in heaven unless you're there. I don't want to escape hell just to live here forever. I want to go where I can see you face to face. Is that the longing of your heart? Because that's behind the true love that's being talked about here. Anything less than that, it's no good. It's no good. You don't want that in your religion. Don't you want the kind of religion? We talked about the fact that, that we don't go on our emotions in the Sunday school class. Brother Childs emphasized, but there are. And I'll guarantee you this. There are. If God takes your life and turns you upside down, gives you a new heart, puts the Spirit within you, circumcises your heart so you love God, makes this endearing cry of Abba erupt out of you, folks, 
You're going to feel that. You're going to know it. Now, you don't trust that, but I'll tell you what, that, that will be a part and a desirable part of your life. Who wants to have a Christianity that you walk around with no feeling, no expression, no desire, no affection, no endearment, no life? Take your dead religion. We don't want it here. And if you don't have that, you can have it. We don't hold up bars and closed doors. It's not like we're this little sect and you can't be a part of us. We're a church of Jesus Christ. He invites all men. Come on. Come to me. All this good you've been hearing about, I will pour it on your head. You just come to me. You trust me. You look to me. Just like Moses in the wilderness held up that serpent. You just look to me in faith and you've got it all. You've got love. I'll give it to you and I'll pour it on you. And it'll come out of you. And I'll make you into a little reflection of myself. And I promise you glory. And I promise you a heaven. Not like the Jehovah's Witness where you just get to wander this earth forever. I'm going to bring you right into my presence. You're going to stare me right in the face. And I'm going to pour my love upon you forever. And I'm going to fill you with such joy. I'm going to fill all of the desires of your heart. You will be overwhelmed. Rejoice and be exceeding glad if your name is written up there. Because the glories and the good that come from this are abounding, folks. And what I ask you in the end of all this, when everything is cleared away, can you say, God, take it all away if you must. Leave me without these things if you will. But just don't take yourself from me. Don't take a sense of you. I can go through it all, Lord, if you'll be there with me and be there at my side. Job, he said it. Oh, I long for the days. Those past days when the smile of God was over my tent. That's all that matters when God changes your heart. You just want Him. He is your chief love. Yes, obedience falls out of it. But every hypocrite has his duty. Every hypocrite has his religion. Don't you dare settle with religion by itself. This woman who just passed off into eternity, she had a religion. I wasn't saying that the woman didn't have beliefs about God and that she didn't have religion. She did. But she rejected Christ. That brings me to my sixth and last point. Observation. Those who love God in Romans 8.28 are very clearly identified by a second title. Oh, here we go, folks. From right here in Romans 8, all the way through the end of Romans 9, we are just going to make some people just raving mad. <laughs> Look, I don't preach with an agenda other than to proclaim what God's Word says. I don't try to make it my thing to preach on one thing all the time. I take it as it comes to us in the Word of God. We've been going through Romans, but I'll tell you what's coming at us right now is the very kind of fodder that crushes the pride of man. We're going to look at salvation gloriously from the Lord. And right from this point forward, brace yourselves, folks. It's coming at us.
Those who are called according to God's purpose. Now look, the two go together, obviously. They're both recipients of this. He's not saying there's two categories. There's those, those that love God over here. There's, there's these over here who are called according to the purpose of God. And they both are partakers of this promise. He clearly is saying those that love God are partakers of this promise. And then he reiterates a little bit and gives us another definition of the same people. You guys all see that, right? Not, not very difficult to see there. All that love God are those who are called according to God's purpose. Now look, if you're here and you're visiting, I'm trusting that you have some respect and some regard for the Word of God. We are all obliged to submit to the truths revealed here. Not simply to push our own little program. That includes us, me. I cannot push my own little program. This is not about my agenda. It's not about what I want to teach. We have to take what God tells us. Right in these verses, we begin to see and have been seeing the very pillars of the Gospel. Look, no man can read from Romans 8.28 through the end of chapter 9 attentively and with understanding and honestly deny the doctrines of sovereign distinguishing grace are the sum and substance of the teaching of the Bible. We want to be biblical, right? We don't want to push any system here except the Word of God. Now, you just consider what we find here in Romans 8.28. Those who are called God calls men and women according to His His purpose. Whom He purposes, He calls. Now this isn't the first time Paul's used this word in Romans. He throws it at us twice actually back in chapter 1. Don't turn there for the sake of time. I'm going to read them to you. Paul says there, that Christians are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's one thing he says. Then again, they are called to be saints. Holy people. People very distinguished fashion set apart for God. That's what saint means. Because saint comes from the word that we get holy from. It means to set apart. They're a set-apart people. And what it's saying here is, by God's purposes, they're called to be set apart. Now, hang with me. Here's what I want you all to understand. When we talk about those who have been called according to God's purpose, we are not just talking about sinners who have been invited to come to Jesus Christ who then might or might not actually come. The call Paul is talking about here in this verse, verse 28, is specifically the almighty voice of God that calls men definitely, 
and effectually out of darkness and into light. Out of the kingdom of the devil and into the kingdom of God. We're talking about a real, moving, effectual, actual call that so moves upon men that they must come to Christ when called. They must believe upon Christ when this call comes. They must be saved when called. Someone might be tempted to say, well, yes, all Christians are called according to the purpose of God. But let's not forget that it's God's purpose to call all men to belong to Jesus Christ. Some would be tempted. That's all He does. He invites them. It's fully left up to each man as to whether He comes or not. Remember, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires all men to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. Now look, I am not going to argue with you as to whether God has a heart for men and a compassion and a kindness and a certain love for all men. I will not argue you. But what I want to point out to you is that the call of God here in verse 28 is not a general invitation for all men, but a powerful, drawing, effectual call that every single time brings the individual to respond by coming. You know why I think that? Why I believe that? All you have to do is look At verse 30, Paul's speaking in very plain terms. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestinated, he also called. Those whom he called, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. That center part of the verse says it all. Those whom He called, He justifies. Folks, to be justified is to be saved. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. Not because of your own innate righteousness, but because of the obedience of Jesus Christ being laid to your account. Your sin being laid to His account. He suffers for your sins. You are accounted the privileges of His righteousness. That happens in this chain to every person called. To be justified comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So to be justified is to be a believer. To be a believer is to be a Christian. Only Christians are justified. And Paul unmistakably points out that all who are justified are exactly the ones who are called. Those he calls, he justifies every time. Look, these are God's words. If any man finds fault with them, let him find fault. But know this. 
You don't reject me. You reject the very testimony of God. If I teach this doctrine on my own authority, I wouldn't blame any of you if you want to reject me, want to reject this church. But when on the authority of Holy Scripture, I can prove it. God forbid that you fight against it. What I'm saying in all this is that if you are one of those who love God, it is absolutely because God is specifically and specially called you out to love Him. And that, by necessary conclusion, leads us to conclude and believe that if you do not love Him, you have not yet been called. In other words, if any man loves God, he loves Him because God called him and gave him the grace to love Him. Come on! If you love God, and you happen to be sitting here today in this place, and you are sitting next to a person who does not love Him, are you going to tell me right now that you made the difference? Are you going to tell me that? Are you going to give the credit and honor to yourself? Are you going to say that one man is better than another and that's why he's saved? If that's what you say, then you do not have the least understanding of the Gospel at all. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to save those who are a little better, a little brighter, a little smarter. You know what the Bible says? God very specifically called the weak, the stupid, the low, the despised. Why? Why does He call those? So that no man will ever get the idea that it was Him. So that there's no boasting before God. That's what 1 Corinthians says. That's why He purposely calls just such. Now maybe you can't conceive of this. Maybe it sounds unfair to you. But I ask you this. Is it unfair? Is it unjust for God to give one man a level of grace that exceeds the man next to him? Because remember, grace isn't deserved. You know, when we start talking fair and justice, we're talking about people who don't receive what they deserve or getting what they didn't deserve, right? That's when we talk about what's unfair. But if grace, by the very nature of it, isn't deserved, can we ever find fault with God if He gives more grace to one than to another? And are we possibly going to say that if one man loves God and came to Christ and embraced their arms around Him, that that isn't a very demonstration of greater grace than the man next to him that refuses that grace? Oh, folks, give God the glory! This is not for man. The very essence of the Gospel found right here in this verse and these that follow, found in the fact that I, I would have rejected this just as well unless God had given me more grace. Grace whereby I'm constrained by the very call of God to come. To love Him. It is a fact that flows right out of these three verses in Romans 8. Look, we simply cannot account for the salvation of one man and the lack of salvation in another 
but by believing that God works more effectually in one man's heart than another. We give God the glory. Why? Why should I hear His voice and come and sit down at at that supper table when thousands make a wretched choice? Why would I come? What was it that sweetly drew us in? Not my own wisdom. God purposely... Look, we have a a group of people here. Look, it says this. Not many mighty. Not many wise. Right? So, the likelihood is we don't have many in here. You know what that means? The likelihood is most of us in here that are saved we're weak, we're foolish, we're despised, but that's okay. Look, I'm going to unashamedly press these truths as we go through here because it's God's Word. The call of God is clearly in verse 30 an outflowing of all those that are predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. And everyone who is called is in time justified and in time glorified. And it is a remarkable truth. That gives us so much hope. We're talking with a lady last night and she wondered why we wasted our time with her. We told her, we were just like you before. We don't rest on our ability to persuade you. We trust in a God who saves sinners. And if we didn't, throw throw the whole deal away, folks. That's all our hope and stay. Amen. You're dismissed.